shortest scripture reading ever? Can I get an amen? All right. <laughs> uh, I feel like y'all are too happy about that. Probably should rebuke that, but I'm not going to. All right. As you said, my name is Brandon. Uh, we, we are beginning a series that we're calling Life Together, and I promise that will be the shortest scripture reading in all three weeks. Um, uh, every year we do this series where we take a few weeks and we pause and we talk about something, uh, an aspect or a few things that we hope mark our uh, life together, something we hope shapes us and animates us today, tomorrow, for years uh, to come if you are new. Uh, this is a peek into, a window into the kind of church that we want to, to be. This year, we're going to talk about three things, presence, hospitality, and multiplication. Today, we're going to start with presence. What, what kind of presence do we want to have here among us and among um, our neighbors? And to talk about that, I want to start by talking about the reason uh, people, or some common reasons people move into the city, move into the heart, uh, the urban center of a city uh, such as where we are uh, right now. Whether you've been here for decades or for a few days, uh, there are some common threads as to why people move in uh, to a city like this. One uh, is for career opportunities, uh, jobs, etc. Another is for diversity and the chance to um, experience a variety of cultures. One could be uh, shorter commutes, the energy of a city, uh, better restaurants, uh, the beautiful skyline that we have in downtown, which is not a joke. Skylines, mountains, same thing. Listen, all, all, I heard one boo out there. Um, I don't want to know who it was. Uh, listen, all those are legitimate reasons to move into a city and to want to be present in a city. All, all reasons I personally find compelling to want to live in the heart of a city. But underneath each of them is this. What, what I get from being here. What it is that I get out of being right here. But here's what I'm wondering. What should be underneath why we stay what should be underneath why we stay? So this is what we're going to do today. Um, we are going to look at one verse about Jesus moving in, about him coming and taking up residence among us. We're going to dissect it, put it over us, and then we're going to apply it and see how it might shape us as a church. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it again, and then we'll just kind of make our way uh, word by word, phrase by phrase uh, through it, this succinct statement. Here it is. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So here's where uh, John begins. He, he begins with this, and the word, calls Jesus the word. Um, now here's what's interesting, is that uh, John is writing to both a Jewish and a Greek audience, uh, and the word that he used is logos, logos. Now, the Jewish audience and the Greek audience both had a different understanding of what logos was, what the word was. So to the Greek audience, uh, logos is where we get the word logic from, right? It's the reason behind the world. It's the why the world exists. You want to figure out the world, you figure out the logos. It's how you understand the world. It's the why behind the world. But for the Jews, it was something different. Uh, it was communication. It was wisdom. It was teaching. Um, they, they would go back to the Ten Commandments, if you will. Uh, we taught on the Ten Commandments out of Exodus 20 a few months ago, and uh, th this is how it opened up. Exodus 20, verse 1, and God spoke all of these, what? Words, words, saying, 
So the Ten Commandments, these ten words that for the Jew, that this was the moral nature of the world, the moral fabric of the universe. It was the how you are supposed to live in the world. Not the why behind the world, but the how to live in the world. And here's the point. What he's doing is he's saying for the, um, for, for the Greeks, the, the, the logos being the why behind the world, or for the Jews, the logos being the how you live in the world, both of them come together in Jesus. Both of them come together in him. That if you want to figure out the why behind the world, you want to understand why the world exists, you look to him. If you want to understand how you are supposed to live in the world, you look to him. He is the interpretive key for the world, for understanding the world, both why it exists and the moral fabric of it, for how to live inside of it. Which is why when we say that we are a church here in the Heights in Houston 2019, when we talk about how we want to live, why we're here, we take our cues from him. We take our cues from him. But he's not just the word, he's the word who became flesh. Now when it says he became flesh, this does not mean that he ceased to be God, it means that God became one of us. That God became one of us. That John opened this letter in verse 1 with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Point being that John is saying God became a man. Now, John is writing this letter for a purpose. He is explicit in chapter 20 about why he is writing this letter. He is writing this letter to be persuasive, to compel Jews and Greeks to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is writing this letter to try to persuade people to believe. And here's what he is doing. He is not giving a set of arguments, a set of compelling, reasonable, logical arguments for the truth of Jesus. He's not giving a new set of moral teachings to try to be persuasive. He's giving you a man. He's giving you a man. He is giving you a man as the compelling proof. I heard a, um, a, a well-known pastor in New York Say it this way. John is, trying, John is not trying to give a watertight argument as his proof. He is giving a watertight person. That when you look at the life of Jesus, you find a watertight person against whom, in the end, there can be no argument. He's not giving a watertight set of coherent arguments. He's giving you a watertight man. A watertight man that when you look at his life, you listen to his teaching against whom there can be no argument. Jesus is the proof for himself. So whether you are a Greek looking for a logical argument or you are Jew looking for a moral set of instructions, you, you find them both in one man, the word who became flesh. This word who became flesh also dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. John is doing something here that really is fascinating. When it says he dwelt among us, the, the, the New Testament is written in Greek. We translate it into English so that we can read it. The, the word for dwell is a, is a particular word that's used here. There were a range of words he could have used. He could have used several words to communicate the idea of dwelling, that he came and dwelled among us. But, it, but he chose a particular word. He chose, uh, not choose, that's not English at all. Um, <laughs> he chose the word tabernacle that he tabernacled among us. He chose a word that, uh, that when they read the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word that was used in Exodus 25 for the tabernacle. What is the tabernacle? 
The tabernacle was the place that Israel went to worship. It was their sanctuary, it was their place of worship. But then in Exodus 40, the glory of God fills that tabernacle, which means the tabernacle is also the place where you came into the presence of God. And what John is doing is, again, bringing them both together in Jesus, the place of worship and the presence of God both found in him. That he is the presence of God among men, and he is the place of worship. They both come together in him as the tabernacle. Now, this would have been radically, radically countercultural, in particular to the, to the Greeks. To the Greeks who thought of God as this distant, remote, out there entity, to have God who came, walked among us, dwelt right here. This would have been, I mean, unbelievable. And, and not in like, ooh, that's unbelievable, but I mean like, I cannot fathom that. This would have collided with how they saw the world. God who came near, not a God who is distant. But the Bible is not the story of a God who is distant. The Bible is a story of the God who came, walked among us, dwelt among us, is here, made presence and home among us. Which is why when we talk about a sermon on presence, it comes from Jesus being the embodied presence of God in the world. He was the word who became flesh and dwelt among us through whom we see the glory of God. And he was full of grace and truth. What does it mean by full of grace and truth? Why is that in there? Well, keep in mind, uh, John is writing this letter to be persuasive and to compel and to um, evangelize Jews and Greeks. Jews who thought grace would have been something you earned. You, you did enough to get it. Greeks who would have thought truth, that's, that's something you figure out. That's a set of coherent logical arguments that you figure out what it is. John bringing them together in a man. Truth and grace are a man. He is the living embodiment of truth and grace in the world. And there's a, a famous story, well-known story out of John 8. With these religious leaders, they, they bring this woman who's caught in adultery to Jesus. And they say, listen, Jesus, here, here's the deal. You, you, you know this as well as we do. We caught her in adultery. You need to stone her. You need to stone this woman, Jesus. She did this. Therefore, you need to do this, and what you need to do is to grab a stone and throw it. And here's what Jesus says. He responds to the religious leaders and says, let who, him who is without sin among you be first to throw a stone at her. And then to her, he says, woman, where, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. If this isn't truth and grace colliding in the life of Jesus, I don't know what is. He does not call what she did something that it wasn't. Doesn't brush it off. But says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin. John 8, though, was only a foreshadow. It was only a foreshadow because not long after this, only a few chapters later in John, Jesus is going to be before Pilate being arrested when he's asked, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And now listen, Jesus could have said no. He could have said no, listen. Uh, no, here's the deal. I was misunderstood. I get why they think I said that, but I was clearly misunderstood. Probably would have saved his life. But what did he say? Yeah, I am, but not like any king you've ever heard of. Not like a king that you're aware of. I, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. 
I'm a king, but I am like no other king that you have ever heard of. And then a few verses later, he says to Pilate, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth, that everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And from there, he was led to a cross where he would climb a tree as a criminal, nails driven through his hands and his feet, and he would die in our place. And you see, this is why the king who became a criminal is why he could look at the woman and say, listen, neither do I condemn you, because here's what you don't know, woman, but I do. Soon, I'm going to be condemned for you. I'm going to be condemned for you. This is the gospel of our resurrected Christ. The one who would stand in the gap for condemned men and women like me and you, who would be condemned for us, who would go down and die for us, but he would not stay in that tomb. Three days later, he would walk out of the tomb resurrected, and he would ascend back to the Father. Spirit would come down, and when it happened, it was as if God was pulling the pin on a grenade, exploding his redemptive movement in all directions. And it is an explosion, a redemptive explosion that is still going and going and going and going. How do I know that it's still going and the plan has not changed? Let's go back to the word dwelt. The word dwelt had a particular usage or meaning at the time that it was written here by John. Words over time change in their meaning or their nuance, right? So if you just follow English, example, you've got Old English, Middle English, Modern English, and you can trace words and their nuanced meanings along the way over the hundreds of years. Same thing here. And so the word to dwell, dwelt, originally had a temporal meaning. But by the time John was using it, this is what it was, to settle down permanently in a place. To settle down permanently in a place, here's the point. The dwelling of Jesus was not a 33-year run that came to an end with his ascension. While he is at the right hand of the Father, he is still dwelling among his church. Do you remember the end of Matthew? Um, Jesus said, um, I'm going to be with you always to the end of the age. And then he disappeared and wasn't with him. How does that work? Here's how it works. Let's read Ephesians 2.22 and then a few verses from chapter 3. In him, you also, you being the church, are being built together into a, what, dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, a few verses later, verse 14 from chapter 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ may, what, dwell in your hearts through faith. Put these two together, and here's what we have. Here's what we have. By the Spirit, through faith, Christ dwelling in the hearts of his people. But we need, we need to pair that with Acts chapter 17 that says this. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. See, here it is. Christ, by the Spirit, through faith, dwelling in his people, as his people dwell among our neighbors and the nations, so that they might seek and find God through you. Christ dwelling in you as you dwell among our neighbors, that they, our neighbors, might seek and find God through you. 
And earlier we said that Jesus is the interpretive key to understanding the world, but the church is meant to be the interpretive key to understanding Jesus. Meant to be the means by which we would look in and see truth and grace on at display. Leslie Newbegin, brilliant pastor, theologian, missiologist, um, he, he said it this way, that the church is to tell and embody and enact the story of redemption in our modern world. In, out, among our world to live and embody and enact the story of truth and grace colliding in Jesus' redemption going forward to be the story that we enact. And when we dwell together as parishes, as a church, we are to be embodiments of that story. Not just for one another, but for our neighbors. And so I want to talk about what it means to dwell. And then I want to talk about some challenges that we face in our time, 2019, in our space, Houston, the Heights, that to dwell, it means to be rooted. It means being rooted in place and space, being a rooted people. But there's some challenges too, right? Often cities, in our neighborhood in particular, especially get treated as a place to just live for a brief time, in particular while we're young, to enjoy the city, but when um, our desires or needs change, we, we go somewhere else. That is kind of a standard Houstonian approach to the urban core of our city. Rarely, rarely do Houstonians think of um, places like the Heights as somewhere to just put down roots and just be. And when we, the church, don't think of it as somewhere to put down roots and to just be, then we can, without realizing it, be following the culture and unknowingly use the city rather than serve the city. And so why? Why do we think, why do Houstonians tend to think of the Heights not as a place to put down roots and to just be? Well, I think that there are some common cultural assumptions out there that some of us have bought into, and we need to address some of them. I'm going to address five of them today. Here's the first one. The first one, the first cultural assumption that we need to address is that we think that we're using the word need appropriately. Listen, it's okay to want things. It is okay to want things. Just call it something that you want, right? Like, I don't want a pool, but some of you do want a pool. I want some of you to have a pool so that my kids can have a pool to swim in. I just don't want it to be mine. But don't say that you need a pool, right? My wife and I, we, we would love to have a house with a garage apartment. We want that. But let's, let's not us say that we need that. Right, there are people in our church who have real physical needs that they need us to meet them for them and with them. Let's use words like need and want appropriately. Here's a second one. I need more space in a bigger house. The desire for more space in a bigger house is not a bad desire. There's nothing wrong with that desire in and of itself but here's what I will tell you you need, you need to do is to build the household of faith right where you are. And the response is often, well, I can just do that anywhere. But what if God hasn't given you anywhere? What if God has given you this household to build? And what if God is calling you to just say, I'm going to forsake the bigger house for this house? What if? What if? 
And of course, you can get more house for your money, you know, 45 minutes from here. Of course, you can. Of course, it is not a good financial decision in that sense. But did, did you know that when we planted this church nine years ago, we had some demographic research done? And do you know what percentage of the greater heights that we live in identified as Christian then? You know what percentage? Four. Four. And I don't think that needle has moved since. And that's compared to the latest research I could find, some of the suburbs around us at 27%. You want to know one way that you can give your life away for the good of the gospel? Be willing to live in a smaller house. And not that the house that's four times the size of what you could get in the woodlands. Listen, do not hear, please, please do not hear me saying that we don't need Christians and churches in all parts of our city. That is 73% of that particular suburb that needs Christians living next door to them. But you know what the Heights needs? 96% of our neighbors need you living next door to them. 96%. 96% of our neighbors need Christians to be rooted right here. Here's a third assumption that when my kids reach a certain age, I will need to leave the city for better schools. I appreciate the desire to do what's best for your kids. I really do. I have four of them, and I want what's best for them, except when they're disobeying. <laughs> but that's simply not true. It's just not. We, we have families who do public school. We have families who do private school. We have families who do home school. My family does HISD, and to date, we love it. We've had no issues with it. We love it. We have families who started a classical school right here in the Heights so that they could stay right here in the Heights. We have families who do homeschool who are part of the larger homeschool network right here. They can do that right here. You can put down roots right here. It is not a reason that you have to leave this area. And what if, what if we reframed the starting point for the question about education? What if it wasn't? When am I going to have to consider leaving? But what if the starting point is, what are my options so that I can stay? What if that were the starting point to the conversation? And if you have questions about any of those three options, we would love to connect you with people who are living in them right now that would be happy to talk you through them. Here's assumption four. I need to do this for my career. I need to do this for my career. How, how many of y'all know the Enneagram? Show of hands. Anybody heard of the Enneagram? Know the Enneagram? Know what it is? Personality profile deal? Dodds, Dodds, hand way up there, back there. Um, I, I'm an Enneagram 3. That's the achiever. I need to do this for my career. I get that. I really do. I get it. Like, the world is a series of mountains to climb. It's not actually how the world is. It's just how Enneagram 3s think it is. But I get it. But you need to ask the question and be challenged with the question of, is what's best for my career necessarily what's best for me? or what's necessarily best for my family. Listen, I'm not going to say your bottom line doesn't matter. I, I am going to say that if um, uh, career advancement in the pursuit of a better bottom line takes you away from the community God has given you to prep you for eternity, at minimum it needs to be questioned. It needs to be thought through and processed through. And I would go a step farther and say that if we have the gospel of a sacrificial son who gave his life away, 
and that God has placed you next to your neighbor so that they might feel and find their way to that God, then your neighbors should at least be a grid in your decision-making. A factor in your grid should be your neighbors. If Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, love your neighbor as yourself, at minimum, your neighbors should be part of your decision-making grid for all major life decisions. And here's assumption five, that I need to move to be near family. Listen, there, there is a sense in which that is beautiful. It really is. I, I, we, we Part of the garage apartment hope for our family is because we have some family that we, we hope move in here with us and live in the heights with us. I, I have my four kids, and I, I want them to grow up, and I don't know where they're going to live one day, but I want them to want to be near us when they grow up. I really do. There is a beauty to this. I'm not about to tell you that desire is wrong, but I am going to tell you this, that when the Bible describes a church, it calls it a family, and so you have a family right here. You have a family that you already belong to, a place where you're known and understood and accepted. So Brandon, in these five, are you telling me that I'm supposed to never, ever leave? Of course that's not what I'm saying. Let me be clear, though, about what I am saying, that anytime you move for one of these five reasons, you're, you're making a value statement. You're making a statement of valuing X versus Y. And our value statements are always rooted in motives. And our motives are always something that all of us need help processing. Because listen, if you think my motives are always pure, they're always right, they're always good, I don't need help processing my motives, then that's called a fool. And I, I, I don't want that to come off as offensive. But it is absolutely true. All of us need one another to help processing our motives, to understand our motives, to put them on the table and say, help me understand what is driving this decision for X, Y, or Z. We need one another to live practical wisdom. We absolutely simply do. In the reasoning that goes, you have to do whatever is best for you and your family on the surface might seem like kind and good counsel, but it's incomplete. It's incomplete because generally what we mean is you or your family ignoring the larger family that God has given you. I don't want to make decisions for my family alone. I want to make decisions with my family, for my family, with my family. I want people speaking into my life, speaking into what it is that we're deciding to do or to not do. So again, does being rooted mean that you will never move? No, that's not what it means. In fact, in two weeks, week three, we're going to talk about why some of you should go. But we'll get to that then. Being rooted is less about where you live tomorrow and more about how you live today. Living in such a way today that shapes your decisions about tomorrow. And so I think it would be great if we all heard from a quote summarizing Wendell Berry's writings. It's a Barry was a novelist, poet, philosopher, and a, uh, I got this quote from the Gospel Coalition. Actually, that's not true. Charlotte got the quote from the Gospel Coalition and then sent it to me, and now I'm going to read it to you. Wendell Berry reminds us that one result of rooting ourselves in God's word should be that we root ourselves in our neighborhoods. These places are likely to be dark and polluted, but in belonging here while stretching toward the light of God's love, we bear witness to John's proclamation. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Barry's fictional characters help us imagine what it might look like to be members of God's household who live with faith, hope, and love, and so bless their neighbors.
This is what we want to be. This is the kind of church we want to be, rooted for the good of one another, for the good of our neighbors, bringing light into dark places. And I think this is what it looks like to be a watertight community. A community that when people look in, they might not like the teachings of Jesus, they might not want anything to do with him, but they would see his truth and his grace on display, cohabitating right here in a people. This is what it means to be a watertight community, living as the interpretive key to Jesus. Truth, grace, on display. And so I want to I land the plane with this. With this simple challenge to us. I want to challenge us to reorient the why behind why we are here. From what we can get from living here to what we can give by being here. From what we receive to what it is that we're able to embody and give away inside our neighborhood, inside our city. And if you're thinking, I'm going to be here for two years, consider four. If you're going to be here for four years, consider six. If you're going to be here for six years, you might as well stay for life. We want to be a rooted church. A church that roots ourselves with one another in our community, among our neighbors. Orienting ourselves not just around what's best for us, but what's best for them. Because God is dwelling here among his people. But his people, the church, that's us, are dwelling among our neighbors. So that they might seek and find through you, through us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to take on flesh, to embody grace and truth, to die on a cross, to give it away, to be resurrected from the grave, to ascend, to unleash your redemptive movement throughout the world. I pray that we would see our life as caught up in what you're doing, that the why behind where we live is about so much more than just yard size or number of bedrooms, but we would consider our neighbors. Love your neighbor as yourself, Lord. Help that be a mantra for us. Let it animate us. We need your help. We're asking for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.